You are listening to the Coffee House Classical Music Podcast. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to episode 29 of the Coffee House Classical Music Podcast. My name is Asa. And I'm Allison. And today we're going to talk about something almost completely different than what we've done before. Scott Joplin, famous composer, and his magnetic rag. And now it's not completely different than everything we've done before, because he was an American composer, and he also lived in the same time as John Philip Sousa in the post-Civil War America. You might also be familiar with his famous rags, the Entertainer or the Maple Leaf, but the Magnetic Rag, as we'll go into, is actually his last published work. So much of Scott Joplin's life is actually a bit cloudy. We don't know his exact date of birth, but we suspect he was born between 1867 and 1868 in Texas, so just two or three years after the conclusion of the American Civil War. And this is significant, because his father was actually a recently freed African American, while his mother had been born free. So as a young child, Joplin actually had some very fortuitous circumstances. He was allowed to fiddle around on the piano of the home where his mother was employed. And he also met a German music teacher by the name of Julius Weiss, who instructed him in European classical style. When he was a teenager, Joplin moved to Sedalia, Missouri, which would become his home for many years. Here, his life details get a little fuzzy again. We can somewhat trace his whereabouts and activities due to mentions in local newspapers. For example, it seems he had begun his musical career sometime in the 1880s, as he was reported to be a band leader in the 1893 Chicago World's Fair. And we're also sure that he attended George R. Smith College back in Sedalia, but it's unsure as to what extent his studies reached, as many of the records were unfortunately destroyed in a fire. Ooh, are there some Joplin conspiracy theories that his life is shrouded in mystery, I wonder? I mean, it's shrouded in some mystery. (laughs) I don't think we can ignore that. Well... You need the real Joplin. Well, we do know his first rag was titled Original Rags and that the publisher bought it for a flat one-time $25. This was actually standard policy for most publishers of the time to just pay one fee to the composer. But Joplin, rightfully taking pride in his excellent work, was quite aghast at this treatment. So, for his next rag, he enlisted a lawyer's help and actually secured a royalty contract. And this was actually really great foresight on his part because this contracted rag, the Maple Leaf Rag, sold more than half a million copies during his lifetime. Scott Joplin then moved from Sedalia to St. Louis, which was a hub for the ragtime genre at the time. He did do a little of his own performing, but he published numerous memorable rags, such as the well-known The Entertainer Rag, and the less-known but also elegant Picherine Rag, and even did some teaching. While he thrived composing ragtime music, Joplin, much like John Philip Sousa, who we've talked about before, and also lived during this post-Civil War era, he yearned to write for the stage. He wrote an opera titled A Guest of Honor, and even formed an opera company and set up a rehearsal space. A tour was lined up, and the company hit the road. However, some devious trickster within the company stole all of the early earnings from the tour. And because of this, Joplin was unable to pay his company or pay for their boarding. 
And then, in a cruel twist of fate, the authorities confiscated all of Joplin's belongings, including all the music for the opera, and it has never been found. I think there's a little bit of weight to these conspiracy theories. (laughs) Shrouded in mystery indeed. So, for some time after this, Joplin struggled to regain his financial stability. He traveled around for a bit and took up odd gigs and published more rags, but they all sort of seemed to copy his own successful maple leaf rag. So Joplin did find some solace in Chicago, where he partnered with a friend, Louis Chauvin, to co-compose the lovely heliotrope bouquet. However, Chauvin died shortly after, and without anything to lose in 1907, Joplin made his way to the heart of American culture, New York City, the Big Apple, and networked with publishers. And he was doing this because he had a new opera idea up his sleeve to be titled Tribonisha, but he needed to gain experience in the big city before anyone would be willing to back and publish such a large production. So after an upward trajectory of success with rags such as the non-perial rag and the paragon rag, Joplin had made all the needed connections and reputation to publish his now pet project. The opera Trimonesia was published in 1911. The story focuses on the heroine Trimonesia who, being the only educated member of her community, becomes a leader to show her community the freedom they gain from knowledge. And this topic was very dear to Joplin's heart, as he viewed education as truly being a way to solve problems, including racial inequality, rampant around the turn of the century. And luckily, Joplin saved this opera score by giving a copy to the music magazine American Musician and Art Journal. In preliminary reviews, the journal proclaimed it was, quote, the most American opera ever composed. Although a full-length production was never seen while Joplin was alive, and it wasn't fully premiered until 1978. So two years later, after Joplin's initial publication of his opera in 1913, he started his own publishing company. Unfortunately, the only work that he published was his Magnetic Reg. He continued to tinker with other compositions, even venturing into the genres of ballets and symphonies, but he didn't publish any of them before his death in 1917. So let's talk about the magnetic rag. So as we mentioned, this ragtime music was Joplin's last completed and published work published under his own company. And as such, some sources have considered it to be in his so-called experimental phase, sort of akin to the revolutionary string quartet Beethoven put out in the last few years of his life. However, we think it's actually less experimental and more just on the forefront of modern composition. Because since he started his own publishing company, Joplin obviously wanted to write something that would sell and be popular with the public. And luckily, his pre-jazz style had been perfected over the years, and that was the sound the people were craving. So even though Joplin's rag music was sort of popular music in America at the time, he had a way of making this music also have a touch of class, such as one might hear in European late romantic keyboard pieces or even waltzes. So most pieces that are written for dancing or entertainment at parties, from waltzes to this rag, have a very definitive and predictable form to help the dancers keep their steps in time. And this rag's form is very straightforward, though slightly different than a majority of other rags, and each section is also repeated. So we first hear our opening A theme in the key of B-flat major, after a brief four-measure introduction. 
Now this jumps into the relative minor key of G minor for a more mysterious sounding B section that has some octave jumps to give the impression of a third hand voice on the piano. Have a jaunty and not at all mysterious sounding C section that has brought us back into the home key of B flat major. And after that, there's a fun transition because this C section sounds like it's about to resolve onto its tonic B flat major chord but we immediately change keys into the D section so the resolution occurs on the minor chord instead for the more prim and proper sounding D section. And after that B flat minor foray, we bring it back full circle into B flat major for our very first A theme again. And this is kind of like sonata form where we hear the first theme, and then it's followed by a cute little coda. So ragtime music is obviously a a forerunner to jazz, but one of the big things that makes this particular rag sound more jazzy and peppy is... Of course, Joplin's extended use of syncopation. So syncopation is when emphasis is placed on a weak beat. So we hear examples of this in two ways in the magnetic rag. First, Joplin uses a pattern of eighth note, quarter note, eighth note, starting on beat one. This means the longer and therefore more emphatic quarter note ends on the upbeat, or the eighth note subdivision of beat one. And when people think of jazz, it's this specific rhythm that usually comes to mind. However, it's important to note when drawing comparisons between ragtime and jazz that even though, with this one in particular, that it shares this rhythm, that rhythm in jazz is very often swung, versus this rhythm in ragtime, where it definitely is not. So Joplin also takes this rhythm and kind of draws it out by doubling each of the note values. So now we have a quarter note, half note, quarter note, and this puts the longer and more emphatic half note on beat two of the measure. So in the hierarchy of beat strength within a 4-4 measure, beat one is the strongest and beat two is comparatively weak. So despite this rhythm being more drawn out, we still hear it as that good groovy syncopation. So in contrast to that good groovy syncopation, just to keep us on our toes, Joplin starts tossing in some very square figures that sound perhaps not even romantic but Mozartian, a la the Turkish march. And here we get a dotted half note followed on beat four by two straight eighth notes. This very gallant phrase is almost like a joke in the midst of all the syncopation. And because of all the off-kilter rhythms around it, it really stands out in its elegance. So let's talk about the bass lines of this piece. In addition to the jazzy or more straight rhythms, the contour of the bass line is able to give a different feel to the music. 
So at times we have a bass line that has just the root of the chord on beats one and three, followed by a fully voiced chord an octave higher on beats two and four. And this is the primary type of bass line we hear throughout the piece, and the beginning starts off with it. Now, it makes sense that Joplin would use this bass pattern because it's very common not only in his previous rags, but in the whole ragtime genre in general. This sort of plodding, ambulatory sound it gives makes people want to tap along to the beat or even get up and dance. And I think that's a great point about rag. At the time of the Magnetic Rag's composition, we're just on the cusp of the big boom of the jazz age. So some more jazzy rather than raggy sounding ideas got incorporated in this piece of music, such as the chromatic bass line that could almost be considered a walking bass, as is heard in many swing standards. And when you hear this section of the magnetic rag, it sounds a little out of place from the rest, and seems to drive harder than the easygoing octave plops we heard before. So, as you can hear, the rag is really quite a precursor to jazz in that it's groovy and danceable, but it's not quite like a waltz where it's very formal. It's a really nice in-between. I think it was absolutely an essential bridge in in sort of the mainstream entertainment scene, in America especially, because if you remember at this time, on the cusp of the jazz age, but jazz at this point is still sort of a back alley or smoke-filled room genre of music in the very early 1900s. It's less, it's, it's not a thing that's played on a main stage, whereas ragtime is... And having some of the, a lot of those similarities in syncopation in some of the exact same rhythms helps to explain, I think, jazz's transition to the mainstream, even though jazz, especially, especially recently, just as a genre, has almost entirely eclipsed ragtime. So I think that's just about a wrap here on The Rag. Thank you all very much for listening to this 29th episode of the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. We've been really enjoying this, and if you enjoy listening to what we do, uh, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes or Google Play uh, to get us a little bit more top of the charts, and consider telling your friends. I'm Allison. And I'm Asa, and we'll see you in episode 30. Thank you so much for listening. Joplin's Magnetic Rag was performed by Constantine Stefan. The Maple Leaf Rag was performed by Stefano Ligorati. The Picherine Rag was performed by Gerlutz. The Hilletrip Bouquet was performed by Constantine Stefan. The Overture to Trimanisha was performed by the Orchestra of the University of Florence. And Mozart's Rondo alla Turca from Piano Sonata No. 11 was performed by Eduardo. You can find The Coffeehouse on iTunes and Google Play. Like us on Facebook and email us at coffeehouseclassical at gmail.com. Thank you.